The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. Tossing out the TINA trade. Why a number of big banks are touting new investor acronyms as interest rates hit multi-year and in some cases multi-decade highs. Key for the markets this week. Fed Chair Jay Powell heads to Capitol Hill for two days of testimony, likely laying out the case for more, not fewer, interest rate hikes later on this year. In China, President Xi Jinping kicking off this week's National People's Congress, consolidating power and targeting the slowest growth rate for China in decades. Plus, Tesla cutting prices on key models once again in a bid to boost demand. And then later on in the show, a renewed push on Capitol Hill to limit or outright ban stock trading among executive branch officials. It's Monday, March 6, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good Monday morning. I'm Dominic Chu in for Frank Holland. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. equity futures after a positive week for stocks. And the Dow is, by the way, first winning week since January. Futures right now, though, very modest, mixed, but not very much so. The Dow Jones is down about five points implied. The S&P is pretty much flat, and the Nasdaq is up by three points. This is a big wait-and-see week. This is all ahead of what we're calling Wall Street's Lucky 13. And the four major events that will likely hold the key to the market's next move, and they're coming over the next 13 trading days. Kicking off tomorrow with Fed Chair Jerome Powell and his two-day semi-annual testimony on Capitol Hill, formerly known as Humphrey Hawkins. This all comes after Friday's jobs report, followed by the latest read on consumer prices on the 14th. And then on March 22nd, the Fed issues its latest policy decision. Fed testimony, February jobs report, CPI, FOMC, all in 13 days. Now, it's growing ever more in favor, all of the data, on 50 basis point rate height versus another quarter point like we saw in January. You can see here, The setup this morning when it comes to what's happening here, January 6th, the probability of some of these moves happening has kind of moved markedly so over the course of the last couple of weeks. Now, within the interest rate complex, if you look at the way rates are shaping up right now, we are seeing the benchmark 10-year note yield creeping slightly lower, just about 3.93% right now. The two-year note yield, 4.84%, and the 30-year long bond, just about 3.86%. Now, in energy, Oil is creeping closer to that $80 per barrel for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude prices, currently $79.15. That's down about two-thirds of 1%. But over the course of the last week, you can kind of see that bump higher that we saw over the course of the end of the week last week. And in cryptocurrencies, we are seeing both Bitcoin and Ethereum trying to find some more upside traction. They're not getting a lot of it this morning. Right now, Bitcoin's relatively flat, still below 23000 22397 the last trade there, about a quarter percent decline for Ethereum, 
$1,565 and change there. Let's get a check on the early trade in Europe. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is standing by in our London newsroom with the latest. Good Monday morning, Juliana. Good morning, Dom. Well, here in Europe, investors paying close attention to all the headlines coming out of China overnight. The Chinese government putting forward a modest 5% growth target for the year, which some had said was disappointing. Some have categorized it as disappointing relative to expectation. Despite that, we are seeing patches of green on the board. The Zetradax up about a third of a percent. The CAC 40 up about four tenths of a percent. The underperforming market here, FTSE 100, is down four tenths. And that's because the basic resources stocks are underperforming this morning most likely in part on the back of that China story. So the miners are selling off pretty heavily this morning. In terms of single stocks, we've got two names in the banking sector to highlight for you. Harris Associates, one of Credit Suisse's longest standing shareholders, has divested its entire stake in the Swiss lender. The move leaves the Saudi National Bank and Qatar Investment Authority as Credit Suisse's largest shareholders, holding just under 17% of the bank between them. Now, Credit Suisse shares are down more than 1% right now. That is a bounce off the lows of the Morning. Harris Associates had been one of the strongest proponents of Credit Suisse, a defender of the transformation taking place at the company. But now they've effectively said, why go for something that's burning capital when the rest of the sector is generating that, uh, alluding to the fact that higher interest rates are providing a boost to the broader European banking sector right now. Now, the other name to highlight is UBS. The CEO Ralph Hammers picked up more than 12.5 million Swiss francs in compensation last year, around 1 million more on the year than last year. Executive to pay is in focus after the SEC changed the rules on how compensation is disclosed in annual reports. This story particularly interesting given that UBS cut back its bonus pool by about 10%. So uh, the CEO gets a boost, but the rest of the bunch, they are looking at a a lower compensation figure relative to the previous year. Lots of movements in Swiss banks over there. Thank you very much, Juliana Tattlebaum. Let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning to you. Arm, the British chipmaker owned by SoftBank, is reportedly seeking to raise at least $8 billion in an IPO. Reuters says Arm is expected to file confidentially for an offering in April with a public listing later this year. The company is hoping for valuation above $50 billion. On Friday, Arm said a U.S. listing is the best option. SoftBank bought Arm in 2016 for about $32 billion. It announced plans for an IPO last year after NVIDIA called off a $40 billion takeover deal. Tesla cutting prices on the Model S and Model X in the U.S. in a bid to boost sales. According to Tesla's website, prices for a Model S are down $5,000, while the Model X has been slashed by $10,000. In January, the company cut prices on its volume leaders Model 3 and Model Y. And at its annual investor day last week, CEO Elon Musk said he was surprised that even small changes in prices could have such a huge effect on demand. Tesla shares are up more than 60 percent this year. And U.S. lawmakers plan to introduce a bill this week to outline ways to ban foreign technology such as TikTok. Data privacy and national security concerns have been swirling around TikTok, which is owned by China's ByteDance. Democratic Senator Mark Warner, who chairs the Intelligence Committee, says he's working on the bill with Republican John Thune Dom. All right. Sylvan Hinao with the latest headlines. Thank you very much. To China now and officials during the National People's Congress setting the country's growth target to its lowest level in decades as global economic headwinds add to domestic concerns. This, as President Xi Jinping plans sweeping new changes to further consolidate his power. Eunice Yoon joins us now from Beijing with the latest. Hi, Eunice. 
Hey, Dom. Well, on Sunday, the outgoing premier opened the Congress by uh, laying out what the targets are going to be for this year. And they've revealed to us that Beijing is feeling a little bit cautious about how things are going to go. Uh, the um, GDP growth target was set at around 5 percent. This is a little bit lower than last year and also uh, well below uh, what uh, the market expectation had been, which had gone as high as 6 percent. Uh, the premier had said that domestic demand is going to be key. But he flagged that there are some risks that the country is concerned about, an unregulated expansion, he said, in real estate, as well as jobs. And we saw that reflected in the unemployment rate target, which is slightly higher than last year of around 5.5 percent as opposed to under 5.5 percent. So giving themselves a little bit of wiggle room there. Uh, today, the economic planner also uh, raised another concern of Beijing, and that is debt from local governments, which uh, the planner said needs to be addressed immediately. That also was reflected in the numbers that we saw over the weekend. The fiscal deficit to GDP set at 3 percent. This is slightly higher than last year. And also um, the local government bond quota. So these are like a special bonds. The number was set lower, which indicates that they uh, are thinking that there's going to be a scaling back of investment in infrastructure projects. Now, the uh, budget priorities were also revealed. Uh, China said that it's going to expand its defense by, uh, by 7.2%. This is actually the fastest pace in four years. Uh, diplomacy also got a bigger boost, 12.2% uh, higher. As the country said, they're going to be uh, pumping out uh, their story a bit more, especially on Belt and Road projects. Science and technology expanded that budget. 2%. And also it was interesting is that there's like a special fund now for chips. There's a lot of discussion about the importance of building up the chip industry here. So that was up by 50%. And this also comes as the premier called for what he described as a whole nation strategy for technology breakthroughs. Uh, obviously, Dom, not specifically uh, talking about the U.S. and the competition, but that's definitely how it's being read. So, Eunice, if we take a look at the way that things are now laid out by the National People's Congress over this past weekend and this consolidation of power, is it almost fair to say at this point that China has to, in some ways, rebalance their economy with regard to trying to achieve these growth targets? They're more modest. They're becoming much more dependent on domestic consumption as opposed to many of the other growth drivers over the last several decades. Is this now what we can expect out of China in the coming years, maybe even decades. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, that's what the leadership has been indicating, that they need to be much more self-reliant. Of course, that means in technology, but it also means on their own consumers. So that was one of the, the, the key messages that we got, that uh, the government here wants to keep people spending. Of course, you can't only do that by, uh, you know, giving them subsidies, for example, though that's something that we're, we're all wondering about. But you also have to create an environment that feels much more stable. And so um, actually in his speech, the premier mentioned the word stability 33 times to try to get people a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more confident. But obviously it's going to take a whole lot more than just that. In fact, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about the Communist Party, um, you know, changing some of the institutions to have much more um, uh, influence in decision making. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal just put out a piece uh, where they were talking to um, some sources which said that that there's a new government agency that could be uh, centralizing all the data management and that that would could potentially mean that multinational companies would have to get some sort of approval to export the data of their customers here elsewhere. 
So we'll see how that develops. But there's been a lot of discussion about the centralization of power with the Communist Party and Xi Jinping, of course, at the top. Eunice Yoon, live with, in Beijing with the latest there. Thank you very much on the National People's Congress. When we come back on the show, the end of the TINA trade, so to speak, why a number of big banks are touting new investor acronyms with interest rates near multi-decade highs, plus buying at the bottom. Hear from one U.S. investor that just sunk nearly $2 billion into the companies of embattled India's Adani. And then later on, prepping for Powell, former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson is here. we got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. It's been a Wall Street investment standard since the financial crisis. But now, with interest rates surging and bond yields at their highest level in some cases in decades, that so-called Tina trade could be nearing its end, and several banks are already hitching their cart to this bandwagon and putting their own spins on this paradigm shift. Now, Goldman Sachs is calling it the tiara, or there are reasonable alternatives to U.S. stocks, while Deutsche Bank is naming it tapas, like the appetizers. There are plenty of alternatives. And don't forget about Insight Investment, calling it the tiara. There is a realistic alternative to U.S. stocks. Taras, tapas, tiaras. Let's talk more about what this means for your investments with Timothy Chubb, the Gerard Chief Investment Officer. Uh, Tim, if you look at the way that these, we've been talking about Tina for as long as I can remember, because it's all the way back until the wake of the great financial crisis. How much have things changed for investors, a generation or two, that now have to actually think about whether or not risk-free rates are better than stock returns in some cases? Yeah, good morning. I'm going to go to tapas there. But yeah, it really is a new paradigm. You think about the last, um, what you said, it's been almost a generation of investors who have really experienced this ultra-low uh, zero interest rate policy. And when you think about the next macroeconomic cycle, there's going to be plenty of forces that are ultimately going to be driving prices permanently higher. You know, there was news over the weekend um, looking, you know, Apple uh, semiconductor, you know, supply chain manufacturer Foxconn moving uh, over to India from from China and you know, a lot of reshoring, you know, taking place here in the United States while you still have really challenging demographics, um, you know, impacting the labor market in a pretty significant way higher prices, ultimately translating into uh, higher interest rates, which means, you know, really ideal environment for bond market investors and also equity investors who are stock pickers when we have a, a you know real rate of return being positive for the first time in a long time. And 
Um, counter that with just the you know backdrop from valuation standpoint. You know, our view is that we're not you know through the earnings revision cycle that you know we're expecting to continue over the next quarter or so. Um, and the equity risk premium, you know, on the S and P 500 is the lowest since 2007. So not only are we really in an environment where there's some great alternatives here, you know, long term as we you know reset into this new uh, economic cycle, but there's really, and I think in the short term, you know, as well, you know, investors should be focused more more so on the bond side of the portfolio than stocks. Uh, t- Tim, we know that every investor is unique in their needs, their their desires, their wants, their risk profiles. But, but is there a general way that you were approaching this market with regard to how you divvy up your kind of, you know, bank type investments? When I say that, I mean CDs and savings accounts versus treasury type investments versus equities. Where's the tipping point? Where's the balance, generally speaking, in your mind? Yeah, I would say, you know, recently we've been really trying to position our duration up a bit higher. You know, we're, we're being compensated to do so. We're taking our risk exposure out on the fixed income side of the portfolio. Um, you know, beyond some of those more conservative investments, you know, like CDs, like treasuries, although, you know, we have taken our underway towards treasuries up quite a bit, um, just given that we're being compensated for, you know, taking on, um, you know, very little risk, you know, as far as treasuries are concerned. But, you know, as far as, you know, looking outside those areas, the fixed income markets, there's, you know, areas within, um, you know, credit, securitize, um, really, especially on the consumer side of things where you really don't have to take on too much duration risk and you're still able to get, you know, yielded maturities up in the high single digit, low double digit type of environment um, without taking on abundance of, uh, of credit risk either. And so, you know, I'd say it, it's a mix. You know, we used to be, you know, in the 60-40 environment where typically we were encouraging investors to take on a little bit more uh, equity exposure within their portfolio to make sure that we're able to get to, you know, what they need for retirement. But, you know, in this environment, I think, you know, we're dusting off the old 60-40 playbook that uh, we sort of shelved, you know, for the better part of 15 years. All right. Timothy Chubb at Girard. Thank you very much. Have a nice day, sir. Thank you, too. Ahead on Worldwide Exchange, more trouble for Norfolk Southern after yet another train derailment in Ohio. We've got that full story when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We continue to monitor shares of Adani's publicly listed stocks just days after the embattled Indian conglomerates told investors that U.S. asset manager GQG is investing nearly $2 billion into four of its stocks and its companies. And now GCG is finally speaking out about those buy-the-dip investments. Our own Seema Modi got that exclusive interview. Seema, what can you tell us and what is the next chapter for this story? Well, Dom, accusations of fraud and stock price manipulation not stopping Rajiv Jain, the $92 billion U.S. asset manager, from investing in Adani, the embattled industrialist. Jain, the CIO of GQG Partners, who resides in Florida, telling CNBC an exclusive broadcast interview he read the Hindenburg Report. But his own research has led him to believe that Adani's infrastructure portfolio is a good bet. We've read the report, but at the end of the day, we get paid to do our own research and we uh, 
we did our own work and, and we, we had slightly different opinion. We followed these, some of these names for actually all, almost five years. We did, never did anything. But after doing our due diligence, we talked to some of the bankers, we talked to some of their partners. Uh, and actually, it's kind of remarkable how consistent the feedback was. And in fact, one of the largest bankers to them, we asked them point blank, would you ever give them more money? He said, of course we would. Jane's $1.9 billion investment into four of Adani's companies, sending shares of Adani Enterprise, Adani Ports higher on the week. And it comes as India's Supreme Court has opened an investigation into Adani's practices. It's a unique investment for Jane, though, who's best known for investing in uh, safe, stable growing companies in the tobacco and energy space. He bought ExxonMobil in the summer of 2021. But he pointed to the drop in the stock price and Adani's assets from the Mumbai airport to India's largest port, which he he says will only grow more valuable as the country prioritizes new reforms. Dom, separately, I am hearing that Adani is headed on a roadshow to Europe and the U.S. to market his bonds to fixed income investors in the coming weeks. Dom. I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, there's this idea that you have to kind of maybe shore up some confidence in those companies and person to person roadshows could help do that. Is there a short term or a longer term position for Jane and his investment And what kind of returns is he expecting to take on the kind of risk he did investing at the lows that he did for the Adani companies? Well, Dom, I asked him that exact question, and he said, similar to his track record, this is not a short-term trade. This is a longer-term investment for his portfolio, which ranges from $92 billion of assets under management across the world. He says this is a portfolio that, given the stock price drop of 48% in Adani Enterprises, uh, that he thinks is worth, um, that is valuable and that will grow more valuable over time because these are hard assets from bridges to ports to airports across the country. And he thinks that this is a return. He's expecting returns returns of mid to high teens. Um, he's pointed to his investment in Petrobras that became more valuable over time. So he, made, he says it may take time, but uh, again, he sees value here. And again, a vote of confidence for the embattled industrialist. Dom? All right. Two sides to every trade. Seema Modi, thank you very much. Let's get a yeah. check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good Monday morning, Francis. Hi, Don. Good morning to you. Another Norfolk Southern train has derailed in Ohio. This time, 28 cars jumped the tracks near Springfield. While the train did carry hazardous materials, none of those cars derailed. The incident is still being investigated. Officials report no injuries and no public health threat. But less than a dozen residents within a thousand feet of the site were asked to shelter in place for roughly nine hours. President Biden spent his Sunday in Selma, Alabama, commemorating the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. In his speech in front of the historic Edmund Pettus Bridge, the president drew historical comparisons between the fight for the right to vote led by the civil rights movement and the struggles he sees for safeguarding voting rights today. Tennis star Novak Djokovic swung and missed on a bid to play in the U.S. Organizers of the BNP Paribas Open in California announced that Djokovic withdrew from the tournament. The world number one said last month that he was seeking an exemption to play in America without the COVID vaccine. Florida Senator Rick Scott tweeted that the Department of Homeland Security denied Djokovic's waiver and urged President Biden to allow him to play. For a Monday morning, Dom, those are your headlines. We send it back to you. Francis Rivera, thank you very much for those headlines. Ahead on the show with Jerome Powell set to speak tomorrow. We talk today with former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson, what he's expecting to hear from the Fed Chairman during congressional testimony tomorrow. We'll be back after this break.
It's 529 Eastern Time here in the New York area. We are just getting started on Worldwide Exchange. Here's what's on deck for WEX. Stocks looking to keep up the recent rebound with the Dow and the S&P snapping multi-week skids. Futures seeking some kind of direction to kick off the new trading week. The Fed is in focus. Fed Chair Jay Powell heading to the Hill this week, likely making the case for more rate hikes to cool off the economy. Former Fed Vice Chairman Roger Ferguson is standing by with what Powell and company may have up their sleeves. And then Amazon continuing to tighten its belt as the e-commerce giant pulls back on its physical store footprint even further. It's Monday, March 6th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Frank Holland this morning. Let's pick up the half hour with U.S. equity futures right now. Again, seeking some kind of direction. It's kind of a wait and see mode. It's very modest, the moves that we've seen so far. The Dow's implied lower by just about 26 points. The S&P is only lower by one to two points and the Nasdaq higher by five. So again, very modest moves in the market ahead of a catalyst heavy couple of weeks. In the bond market, yields are also falling right now. The 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield is now decently below 4%, just a hair below 3.92% there. The two-year note yield, 4.84%, and the 30-year long bond, about 3.84% there as well. Let's also hit oil prices. We're pushing up against that $80 mark for U.S. benchmark West Texas intermediate prices, although we are seeing a bit of a pullback today. $78.57 for WTI crude. That's down about a buck ten or roughly one and a half percent. Similar percentage decline for ice Brent crude futures. The world benchmark gauge, $84.61. And that gas price is down about 11 percent to $2.69 per million British thermal units. Let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories as well. Silvana Hinao is back with those. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. Well, the effort to ban stock trading within the executive branch of reportedly finding new life. According to The Wall Street Journal, Republican Senator Josh Hawley is expected to introduce a new bill on the matter today. Now, the journal says the legislation would ban senior executive branch officials from owning or trading individual stocks in a bid to combat conflicts of interest within the federal government. Now, Hawley's bill comes after efforts to pass a ban for the executive branch, Congress, or both branches fell apart last fall. The Wall Street Journal also reporting Twitter has revealed a roughly 40 percent drop in earnings and revenue for December from one year ago. The paper says that figure comes after several advertisers slashed slashed their spending on the platform following Elon Musk's takeover. But the journal does add that Twitter recently revealed some advertisers are returning to the platform. And Amazon ramping up its efforts to cut costs. The e-commerce giant announcing it's going to close eight of its Go convenience stores in New York City, Seattle and San Francisco. Amazon previously announced it would close some Go stores and fresh supermarkets as it reevaluates its brick and mortar strategy. Dom, I always wanted to walk into one of those and see how it goes. See how it is. I've never had any personal experience, so I'll have to rely on those other people to tell me what that is. (laughs) <laughs> what the experience is like. All right, Silvana, thank you very much for yeah, that. No. The markets are facing a crucial test this week with the February jobs report on Friday, along with Fed Chair Jay Powell's semi-annual testimony to Congress on the economy and monetary policy, formerly known as Humphrey Hawkins. Now, on the data front, the key question is whether January's gigantic job gains carried over to last month, which could reset expectations on just how high the Fed will have to maybe take interest rates to bring down inflation. Investors haven't heard from Powell in a month since he took part in that Q&A at the 
Economic Club of Washington when he said that signs of disinflation are popping up, while also acknowledging the path back to the Fed's 2% target inflation will likely be, quote-unquote, bumpy. Powell goes before the Senate Banking Committee tomorrow and then the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday. So let's talk more about the big week ahead with Roger Ferguson, former Fed vice chairman, past president and CEO of TIAA-CREF, also a CNBC contributor. Roger, it's always great to have you on to get your thoughts here because you were a guy that was behind the boardroom doors for so many years. Can you take us through what the narrative is is in your opinion like right now for the Fed? This is probably one of the toughest situations that they've had to be in, navigating both Main Street and Wall Street at the same time. What does Fed Chair Jay Powell have to tell Congress? Uh, Thanks, Don. Pleasure to be here. I think he's got three messages in the upcoming uh, testimony. First, I think he uh, reflects, as he did the last time, that indeed labor markets are still tight. I think he positions that as a positive. They're resilient, which means uh, the ability to withstand further increases in rates. I think he'll also have to acknowledge that the disinflation process may be slower than perhaps he thought last month with incoming data showing um, some stickiness in terms of inflation. So that's point one, the reality of the day. Point two, I think he's going to want to keep as much flexibility about the future of rate increases as possible. Um, you know, there's some talk now we're 50 basis point hike next meeting. Don't think that's baked in yet, but I think he wants to keep as much flexibility as possible uh, to respond to incoming data uh, and also to keep the market from uh, getting too optimistic. And then the third thing I think he wants to do is just, again, uh, reinforce the 2% inflation target. There's been some whispering that maybe there's some move there. I think he wants to be clear that 2% is where they're headed. So, okay, if, if that's the case, it, it, we know the Fed is data dependent, and, and they've said it for so many weeks, months, years at this point now. There, there was an argument to be made, Roger, that the markets got off on a more bullish feel after the last jobs report because there were signs that job growth was still there with not as much inflation on the wage front. How much is the Fed paying attention to the wage side of things, per se, as opposed to the broader macro narrative of the number of jobs created in this country? It's got to have an eye on both, obviously. But I think what they're worried about is the job market is the thing that's going to drive potential inflation in the area that's most prone to inflation right now, which is services. So it's nice to see just a little bit of cooling in the wages, but the job numbers have come in you know, very hot. I don't expect a repeat uh, of the January you know, blockbuster number, but the most recent uh, initial claims data also was on the hot side. Um, and so I think they are continuing to focus on that jobs number probably a touch more than the wage number because they're worried about uh, inflation picking up in the service sector and, importantly, inflation expectations, which have also been matching up just a little bit of late. Uh, and so I think the focus should be on the labor market. That's where I think the risk is, and that is, I think, uh, likely to be the number one topic. The, the Fed hasn't had to face this kind of scrutiny from Main Street America arguably in maybe a generation or two. Uh, Everybody now talks about uh, it used to be gasoline prices last year. It was egg prices earlier this year. People are still very focused on the consumer side of things. How much does the Fed really have to kind of message itself in a different way, perhaps, a different form of, uh, of, of communication to make sure that Main Street America kind of gets what's going on right now? 
Look, I think you've seen some of that already because they're now talking about, you know, the impact of inflation on the average Americans. They're talking about pocketbook issues um, to show that they are attuned to the fact that inflation is, you know, a drag and a tax on, on low and moderate income Americans. So I think they're trying to put this notion of raising rates slowing the economy in a context that over time this is good for you know the average main street person uh, and you've heard them say that many times the, you've also heard them say it could be bumpy so i think they're trying to get people ready for you know a a softish hardish kind of landing you know maybe maybe a very mild recession so i think they're very much trying to speak to main street uh, as well as trying to manage expectations on Wall Street. So, uh, Roger, there's been, and one of the reasons why we have you on is because you've worn multiple hats on the private sector and the public side of things. You've seen the policy side from the Fed. You've seen the asset manager side of TAA, TIAA. I, I wonder, we've been talking a lot about the change in paradigm. It's gone from there is no alternative, right? We, we've got now higher interest rates to a point now where there are now reasonable alternatives. That's one of the, 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 the acronyms out there. Is the Fed in a good spot? Are, are capital markets now more likely efficiently allocating capital because there are now legitimate risk-free rates? And what's the broader impact on corporate capital spending and the broader economy with interest rates this high? Look, I think it's very important to inter get interest rates back to something that seems like historically normal rates. You know, the, the zero interest rate, um, uh, and there is no alternative, really is not healthy, right? Money should not be free. There should be a yield curve that reflects the fact that, you know, borrowing money uh, over longer periods of time becomes much more, uh, you know, expensive. The Fed should not be trying to talk down the longer end of the yield curve. So I actually think we're in a healthier place where there are alternatives, where there's not an expectation that the riskiest assets is always where one should be, and getting back to some notion of fixed income investing um, as well as equity investing for the retail investor is important. Uh, I think it's also important for businesses to actually have you know, a cost of capital that reflects the fact that they may be borrowing money for longer periods of time. Uh, and so overall, I think we're in a healthier place to not have uh, zero interest rate policies and central banks trying to keep interest rates low across the entire yield curve to avoid uh, anxieties around uh, disinflation or even worse, deflation. All right. Roger Ferguson, a, a catalyst heavy week in the next couple of weeks coming up here. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. All right, coming up on the show, China pulling back the curtain on the new normal as leaders there look to revive the country's economy in the fallout of strict COVID rules. But first, as we head out to break, some of your top trending stories this morning. The newest Girl Scout cookie, the Raspberry Rally. I have personal experience with this. Going for more than $100 a box on eBay after selling out within hours of its launch. The Girl Scout saying the organization is disappointed to see resales of the cookies which normally go to 5 or $6 a box on other vendors. My daughter's in a big cookie-selling campaign herself right now. The third installment of the Creed movie series, topping estimates with a nearly $59 million domestic debut, one of the best opening weekends ever for a sports-themed film. The movie, a potentially key moment for Amazon Studios, marking its first box office blockbuster since it bought the MGM Studios back in May of 2021. And back for a limited time only, the KFC Double Down Sandwich. That sandwich, which replaces the buns of a sandwich with two fried chicken fillets, as you're seeing there 
will be in stores starting, yes, today, after a nearly 10-year hiatus. Now, if you want one, you better hurry. It's only on sale for one month. The Double Down, two chicken patties sandwiching bacon and cheese. Worldwide Exchange is back in the Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. China setting a modest target for economic growth this year as its annual session of its National People's Congress got underway this past weekend. Officials setting a GDP target of around 5%. That's at the low end of expectations, but an uptick from last year's 3% in the midst of COVID zero. One of the country's worst readings in decades amid all those ongoing COVID restrictions. Leaders also unveiling additional measures to help the world's second largest economy rebound from its COVID-era slump. For more now on China's economic expectations and the key takeaways for investors, let's bring in DeWardrick McNeil, Longview Global Managing Director and a senior policy analyst. He's also a CNBC contributor. He's, a lot of, he's had a lot of experience on the government treasury side of things, regulatory-wise, and then kind of the economic side of things. So, DeWardrick, thank you for joining us here. I, I wonder, with the expectations that have now been set by the Chinese Communist Party about what their future growth should look like this coming year, has it changed the investment environment? Should people still feel comfortable investing in China or should they take more of a wait and see approach? Well, Dom, I actually think that when you look at the 5% GDP target, uh, it's, a, it's conservative for China, true, but what they're focused on in that number to me is more about credibility. They're focused on making sure that they have some growth target that attracts investors back, that signals to the domestic audience that uh, China is looking to return to some sort of economic stability. But you'll remember, Don, setting a target last year at 5.5, every single time you had an analyst come on, the conversation was about that they were not going to hit that target. So China was really looking for credibility, I think, with this number. And again, yes, it's conservative, but it's it's realistic. So, you know, I think on the market side of things, this is a good signal. But there's some other things happening underneath uh, those top line numbers for GDP and military growth that has me concerned if I'm an investor. And that is some of the structural reforms, Dom, that's really pushing the party to the center of the economic management uh, of the day-to-day economy. That would have me more worried than a 5% or or 5.5% GDP top-line figure. So, DeWardrick, in a a prior life, you also were part of the Defense Department, and you've you've focused on East Asia, and China is the biggest force. The the, the hegemony that it has in in the region is is, is unquestioned at this point. They've also got one of the biggest militaries in the world. How much does geopolitical risk now factor into the investment thesis out there for folks do they have to worry about whether or not China may at some point go after Taiwan or, or what the U.S. is going to do in retaliation, hypothetically, for something like that? How much does that play into the discussion? Well, I think you always have to consider uh, China's goals around uh, Taiwan. Uh, one likes to think, though, that, that that is not a near-term scenario. What's more concerning to me, Dom, is the sort of tech war that we find ourselves in uh, the U.S. and China and what you're seeing happen with both countries uh, structuring themselves and reforming in a way that prepares for a long-term strategic competition with each other outside of what may happen with respect to Taiwan, which, again, I don't see that as a near-term issue. 
but the strategic challenges that China poses to the U.S. and the U.S. looking to match that are real concerns for me in terms of, of volatility and uncertainty in the policy and geopolitical environment, for sure. And uh, we just got a couple moments left here, George, just a few seconds. Is big tech in China safe to invest in? I'd be very careful in this sector, Dom. This is where competition really lies, particularly AI, uh, cloud computing, and some of the more emerging technologies. And I don't think the Biden administration is finished doing everything it needs to do to protect U.S. tech and U.S. leadership in this sector. So me personally, I would be a little bit more hesitant in that particular sector when it comes to China. DeWardrick McNeil, Longview. Thank you very much, sir. Great to get your thoughts. Thank you, Dom. As we head out to break, throughout the month of March, we are celebrating women's heritage, sharing the stories of women leaders in business and those of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here is Regent Cruise Line's president, Andrea DeMarco. My advice to women is to follow what you love, find that true passion in life, and work in that industry. What I've found to be really successful throughout my career is I've always looked for ways to challenge myself, really push myself outside of my comfort zone, think out of the box, and learn new things. And of course, as a mother of two young kids, I'm always juggling, whether it's at work or at home. Finding that work-life balance is always going to be a struggle, but having a really strong support system in place will do wonders. And at the end of the day, you own your journey. So make sure you go after what you want. The future is yours. Welcome back. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 o'clock hour Eastern time. A second Norfolk Southern train derailing in Ohio this past weekend, less than a month after the first accident in East, East Palestine, just 180 miles away. This latest derailment did not involve hazardous materials. Arm is expected to raise at least $8 billion from its U.S. stock market debut later on this year. That's according to a report from Reuters. Tesla slashing prices on its most expensive vehicles, the Model S and Model X, days after CEO Elon Musk said recent price cuts on other models had stoked demand. UBS Group cut employee bonuses for last year by about 10% due to a drop in deal-making activity despite the lost revenue, though. Company CEO Ralph Hammers still saw a pay increase compared to a year ago. Texts from crypto giant Binance reviewed by The Wall Street Journal reveal plans to circumvent U.S. regulatory authorities. From the text, Binance calling any U.S. lawsuit the equivalent of a, quote, nuclear fallout for its businesses and officers. And Apple reportedly preparing to release a new 24-inch iMac as early as the second half of this year, its first refresh of that iMac since April of 2021. Back to your money and what we're calling Wall Street's Lucky 13 and the four major events that will likely hold the key to the market's move over the next 13 trading days, kicking off tomorrow with Fed Chair Jay Powell and his two-day semi-annual testimony to Capitol Hill. After Powell comes Friday's big jobs report for February, followed by the latest read on consumer prices, CPI, on March 14th. And then on March 22nd, it's the Fed, its latest policy decision on interest rates. That's a lot of stuff in two weeks. Let's bring in Tiffany McGee, CEO and CIO at Pivotal Advisors. She's also a CNBC contributor. Tiffany, uh, just how important are these four catalysts for the market story in the coming months? Good morning, Don. So listen, you know, we're, we're seeing the market react to all of these little um, uh, drops of data and, of course, Fed comments. But I really, you know, um, 
I really think that the single most in, in influential event um, that has the potential to stabilize the market and kind of get us back in sustainable, positive territory is the Fed pausing rate hikes, right? And so, look, we, you know, the S&P was up 9% year to date uh, just a little while ago, and now we're only up 4.5%. So we are seeing, you know, the, like the, the market react to data and news, but those are short-term uh, little blips on the screen. Long-term, I think that the Fed uh, uh, pausing their rate hikes is really going to be the, the, the thing that kind of sustains the market do, going forward. Do you think it's going to happen? I, I mean, this pause that, that people have been talking about, so to speak, it, it, it seems hard to believe that given all the speak we've heard, that that's even a possibility anytime soon. Well, I listen. I think that we're going to continue to see volatility at least through through um, the first half of the year. I don't expect the like the Fed to make a really bold decision in the next few months. Um, so you know, it. It, we, it really remains to be seen, but I think investors, listen, what we do have is a schedule of, of economic data released and a Fed comments. And so, you know, if you're an investor and, you're, you're, you, and you uh, understand that those events are coming, you know, position your portfolio. So if you're going to position it in that way, is this the time to mm-hmm. buy? Should you stay in the market right now? Should you try to raise cash? Uh, what exactly is the strategy tilt? Yeah. So listen, if last year was if last year's theme was patience, this year's theme is uh, get ready and stay ready. And so, you know, positioning your portfolio, making sure that you do have cash on hand to be able to buy the names that you want to buy when there is that little inflection point when uh, when they are on sale, I think is is really key. But also, you know, rebalancing. You know, we just had a really uh, um, uh, interesting year last year. If you haven't rebalanced your portfolio, it probably is time to do that. Um, and just making sure that you do have that cash on hand to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. All right. And before we let you go, top picks from you right now? Oh, uh, it's got to be Microsoft with AI. I think they're really well positioned to kind of integrate AI across all of their platforms. And then take a look at Ferrari. Uh, uh, it's it's a race is the symbol. Um, you know, revenue of three point nine billion, net profit margins over twenty percent, and it's almost up about twenty seven percent year to date. Who was thinking about Ferrari? All right, it's a big EV play for the longer term as well. I can guess. So it's EVs yeah. and AI for Tiffany McGee. Thank you very much. Always yeah. great to get your thoughts. We appreciate Thanks, it. We'll Tom. see you soon. All right, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Check out the markets right now because this is, again, very much a wait-and-see environment. The Dow is implied higher by just two points, the S&P higher by one, and the Nasdaq higher by just about 19 to 20. Again, four major catalysts for markets coming up in the next two weeks, all Fed and interest rate-related economic data. Keep an eye on all those. I know Squawk Box will be picking up that market coverage. It comes up next. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. 
absolutely, positively FedEx.